0: A different kind of leader captures insights from diverse leaders in healthcare, public health, and academic settings, so that our organizations are in a stronger position to grow, innovate, and meet the challenges of our day. To our listeners, thanks so much for joining us. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by Dr. Ebony Boulware, and we both are in Chapel Hill, so we get to actually record together. Her research focuses on improving health care, health outcomes, and health equity for individuals with chronic diseases, in particular, chronic kidney disease and hypertension. She is an elected member of the American Society for Clinical Investigation and the National Academy of Medicine. Dr. Beware, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me, Giselle. Very excited.
0: Okay, let's get into it. First we ask each guest for a quote that embodies your leadership style or your approach to your career.
1: Okay. My quote would be just do you. That's my quote. I love it. I think you just have to have your own light, have confidence in that, let it shine, bring that to the table every day, and try to, you know, work collaboratively with people to, you know, kind of get that shared vision of what you're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. But just do you. I'm trying to do me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great. So please tell us a little bit about how you got started in your career. Tell us about your early beginnings and your leadership journey. I went into medicine sort of following in my parents' footsteps. My parents are both physicians.
1: And um, so medicine seemed like almost an automatic opportunity and possibility for me. Uh, so I, when I got into medicine, I started my usual training with medical school and became a resident. Um, but during my residency training, um, I was identified as a leader and became a chief resident. So I began to get my first taste of what it meant to be a leader among peers as a chief resident at university of Maryland. And in that role, I was teaching, you know, other residents, um, you know, beginning my career as, as a physician and enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, and then I decided I was going to be going into clinical research. And so I went to Johns Hopkins University where I got some early research training and started my career as faculty. And I was on faculty there for about 10 years building my research program, which meant that I was working with colleagues but also hiring people and developing a research team and and i happened to be good at research and my team my research grew and my team grew as a result and in doing in building that team i then learned not only about management but just leadership again Um, and over time uh, as my career matured i started feeling sort of a tug a tug toward wanting to do more and have a greater impact in my environment So I took on an associate center directorship while I was at Johns Hopkins, and shortly thereafter, within a year or two, um, was recruited to Duke to become the chief of the Division of General Internal Medicine, which is a division of about 200 faculty members who do clinical care, um, teach, and do research. Um, And that was a lot of fun, um, and I took to that quite, quite naturally, I think. Um, and I was shortly thereafter asked by my dean at Duke to take on um, leadership of another large entity, the Clinical and Translational Science Institute, which um, is supported by, it's a $60 million institute with research programs uh, so supported in part through an NIH, a large NIH award called the Clinical and Translational Science Award. But there are a number of different entities within that institute, centers and research programs, um, and I'm the director of the institute, but I'm also um, a vice dean for translational research, where I advise our dean at Duke about translational science and translational research, as well as the associate vice chancellor for research uh, translational research at Duke, where I advise our chancellor. So I've had a lot of leadership experience in a short amount of time, um, and it's sort of been like, a rocket ship ride.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I remember as chief resident is I, I actually wouldn't have called myself a leader at that point because right after that, when I tried to do research, I felt completely with <laughs> that I had no skills. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, at every transition point, it's humbling because you sort of start from scratch again. So at least the way that my career has gone, I have some trajectory of success, then, you know, I've had a leadership opportunity. If I've chosen to take that on, that's been another sort of learning aspect uh, where I've gained greater insight, though, on what I was doing along the way. Um, But definitely at every transition point, there's been a time to start over, kind of become humbled from what I don't know, build my credibility up over years, and then, um, you know, get to a point where, Hopefully, I'm at a point where I know enough and feel confident enough to then engage in leadership. Um, So I think it is a constant relearning and a constant, um, you know, I felt like at each time point, I've probably gotten to some sort of a plateau, and then I'm ready to take on the
0: next um, challenge. How did you make some of those decisions about those leadership roles? Is that something that you sort of had a trajectory that you were thinking about when you went in?
1: No, not at all. In fact, I actually just think leadership is something that's just natural to me. I was always captain of my athletic teams. I was just always somebody who had wanted to be, I don't know if it's, you know, me wanting to be the center of the attention. I don't think so because I'm actually a big introvert. I'm actually a huge introvert, which is, which is ironic for me being a leader and being such an introvert. But' it's, I always have wanted to say something and be heard. and I think those are, that's kind of the, the one common thread that's, that's come along in each of my leadership roles. I've always, you know, felt strongly about things that I think are right or wrong. Um, I've always felt like I had something to say or to contribute to making whatever organization or place that I've been a better organization or place, and that's what I think has drawn me towards leadership the most.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when do you think was that moment where you realized you were a leader? Was it?
1: Well, I think actually it's taken me a while. now. Yeah, my reflection is me looking back on Mm -hmm. it. I think it wasn't until I took on the Duke Chief General Internal Medicine job after two, three years that I realized what leadership really is. Um, I often just sort of get tickled when I think about when I moved from Johns Hopkins to Duke and... I was in a room of people and, you know, I had now a really bona fide leadership role and I was saying something and I realized people are quiet and they're actually listening to me. (laughs) And I, it was like, I called up my dad and I was like, dad, I had this total EF Hutton moment, you know? Um, And he was just laughing. I said, you know, this is so interesting how in a leadership role you are blessed with the capacity to have people listen to you. And that's an opportunity to get them on board with an exciting idea or an exciting movement or something that's important. And that's um, been something for me to just reflect on and and take in and recognize as an honor that you have as a leader.
0: I also uh, have an introvert preference. Um, can I can't you, believe it. I do. Okay. <laughs> I do. I do. i right on the border, um, but I definitely have an introverted preference. And so can you... You mentioned that, and so can you say a little bit more about what that means for you as a leader?
1: Well, for me, being first, just being an introvert means that, you know, I gain my energy from those quiet moments when I can actually think and I can have downtime and I'm not, you know, stimulated a lot to give outwardly. Uh, but being a leader actually means I'm constantly giving to other people, whether it be in a meeting, whether it be in any setting there are people looking to me to answer questions, um, hear about an issue, solve a problem, mm-hmm. um, provide a vision. And those things require a lot of extra effort to give out. It's rewarding, but you know, at the end of my days, I'm often exhausted because I don't necessarily gain my energy from that. I gain my energy from the flip side of having that downtime to think about those things rather than in the action of giving. So what that means is that for me as a leader, I have to be very cognizant, and I constantly am learning and always, even now, learning more about this, figuring out how to harness my energy and maintain that so that I'm
0: able to maintain the strength of my leadership. Great. What are some of the joys about being a diverse leader?
1: Well, for me, one of the joys about being a diverse leader is often being the only person at the table that has my agenda. Um, Frequently, I'm sitting at tables where nobody looks like me and nobody has any background or any insight into what my experience is. And and I like being at the table, hearing the conversations, and being able to ask the right questions, point out some of the challenges that we might have. And I like being there to be a witness when something is going down that I don't think is right, or some conversation needs to be had, or something needs to be thought about. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's one of the greatest joys of being a leader. Mm-hmm.
0: And what about the costs? What costs or challenges are there for diverse leaders that you see?
1: For, for me, I'd
0: say the cost is, is isolation.
1: Mm. It's, you know, I, it's, you know, when they say it's lonely at the top, for me, it's very lonely at the top. I do not have the kind... I look at some of my colleague leaders, you know, my peers, and, you know, they're often out at dinner, or they may have, you know, family events, or they may be going golfing together or whatever it is that they're doing. And I'm not a part of that. And I'm not saying I really want to necessarily be a part of it with them, but not having more people around that are like me means that I am often among people that I do not resonate with on a personal level. And that means that I have fewer opportunities to share with them frustrations or challenges that I'm having. Um, there's less opportunity for me to diffuse some of the tension that happens just when you are a leader and you've got lots of people pulling and tugging at, at you in different directions.
0: Yeah, this is, this is in part part of the reason that I want to do this podcast is that there's so many of us that are often the only ones at the table that have that diverse perspective. How have mentors played a role in your career journey?
1: Mentors have been critical in helping me learn specifically, you know, in helping me learn the technical aspects of my job or in particular research. So for research, which is just a very long trajectory, it takes a long time to learn those that skill set and to learn how to do it well. Mentors have been critical. They've also been critical for me in just providing me with the opportunities, helping me get networked Helping me get a door, a leg in the door. So mentors have really been critical for me along the way. I have one one great mentor, Neil Poe, who I give a lot of credit for for helping me on my early journey in research. And really, kind of, not only did I learn the ropes of how to do excellent research, but really, kind of learning how to negotiate and navigate the academic environment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And sponsors. Sponsors is a different story. Mm -hmm. Sponsors are people that kind of line up behind you and do really great things for you when you don't even know it. And I've had some fantastic sponsors um, like Dr. Nancy Andrews, who was a former dean at Duke University, who basically was the person behind the person recruiting me, making sure that they had a successful recruitment to Duke from Johns Hopkins. And, you know, she has really, um, she doesn't, tell me, but I often know, because I can trace back, you doing my forensics, on who, <laughs> who, how did this, this opportunity come about? You know, this, these are the kinds of people that basically put your name forward when there's an opportunity, are thinking about you all the time, and that has had a transformative effect on my career. People who have really said, you know, think about Ebony for this, or think about Ebony for that. Those are opportunities that I don't think would have come my way without that kind of sponsorship, mm-hmm. so that's a critical element of It's critically helped me with my leadership. Um, And I wouldn't necessarily say that the sponsors are really mentors because I don't necessarily go to these people to ask them how to do my leadership, but they're making the opportunities available. Um, And that's critical. I think in particular for diverse leaders, having sponsors is, great sponsors can be rare
0: because we don't
1: have the networks that often are non-diverse leaders have Mm -hmm. um and so where sponsorship may happen a lot more when you're just networking constantly with people that are like you when you're not in those those networks as much having a sponsor is a really valuable precious thing yeah
0: yeah yeah having those people that sort of have your back and sometimes even see further than you can see for yourself yeah yeah
1: they may be they may be way out Mm -hmm. they're doing things that you have no idea they're doing and that's, that's really um, precious and a blessing when you have sponsors. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. You have had some in, sort of a, this meteoric rise and just incredible successes and accomplishments along the way. Um, but we all are human, and we all make mistakes. So, what do you think is your has been your most important sort of mistake or failure?
1: Well, early, early, early on in my career, actually, this was when I was a chief resident, I learned i I made a mistake where um, somebody that I was leading made a mistake. They made a mistake and um, I really came down very, very hard on this person, and I sort of said, you know, sort of like I expected them to be excellent, and they really failed, and I made them feel terrible. Mm -hmm. And that, I had, there was a big repercussion to that because people were really hurt by that long-term, and I think it actually even affected people's, like, careers, Mm -hmm. and that's something that really stuck with me about how do I bring more humanism and like empathy into how I deal with other people? Because although I have a very high standard for myself and what I'd like to see happen, we are all human and none of us are perfect. And I think what I've learned over the years is the more I can tap into that human element, that human understanding about who people are, what drives them, why people make mistakes. I mean, and it's okay. Mistakes happen all the time and no mistake is really kind of totally un- recoverable. we all just get over them um that has served me well um that's one of the biggest lessons is that I've learned is to tap into the human element
0: well the flip side is sort of something you're most proud of oh yeah um or, or even
1: now on the, uh, what I will say what I will say uh, uh, just as a, maybe a caveat to what I just said is that I've also learned that sometimes you have to make hard decisions where the human element just doesn't carry. So you may really like somebody and they could be a really great person, but if they can't handle the job, they can't get that part done. And you've given them ample opportunity. You've had discussions with them. This is an open, transparent process. You sometimes have to make very hard decisions that somebody's just not fit for a a specific role. So I think in leadership, that's the other end of it's tough when you're relating to people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And sort of integrating that and sort of being able to hold that duality of yeah. high standards and excellence, but also giving folks that grace to be able to make mistakes
1: absolutely, in, the,
0: in a setting that's supportive, yeah. th- where they can also learn from it.
1: Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I try to foster that as much as I possibly can um, in all the settings that I'm in. You know, it's a work in progress. Yeah, aren't
0: we all? <laughs> yeah. Something you're most proud of?
1: Well, one thing I'm really most proud of is my mentoring. I have, I have mentored in my leadership, through leadership and just through what I've done, a number of people along the way at all levels of their careers, be it student, be it resident, be it fellow, be it faculty. And I've been um, really honored to see people just take off in their careers um, and being a part of that is exceedingly special to me. And I think being a leader actually puts you in more opportunities where you can mentor people even more. So while I have like very direct mentorship with people who are working with me on my research or very aligned things, I also have indirect mentorship of people who are just coming in and saying, Hey, I have, I want to share with you what I'm doing or what I'm going through. What would you do? What do you think? And that's really been something that I'm, I'm very proud and very, you know, I love to do as part of my job or my work. The other thing is that that I'm very proud of is just developing groups to being something better than what they were before. Um, You know, a few years of being in on my current positions, I'm seeing these organizations develop and thrive and people coming there and being excited and, you know, feeling great, and I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that. That I have, in part, through my leadership, working with others, been able to foster that kind of growth and excitement. And I so, asked that yeah. because
0: it it is actually quite remarkable. Every place you've been at, you've made it, you've left it better than it was before. So,
1: so so I I mean, thank you for saying <laughs> that. Um, um, the what I I think for me the key for me is that there are two elements of my personality that work for this. One is that I am a dreamer. I do have a vision for how things can be better. And I get really excited about that. And when I, people can always tell when I'm in a meeting and I'm like, oh, and we can do this, and we, can, we should do that. And everybody's, everybody comes out like, yeah, let's go do it. We're so excited, you know? And then my, my assistant Harriet's like, oh, this is, you've just generated another 15 meetings for me to put on the calendar. Oh Lord, here they come. They're all excited, all the laughing and excitement that was happening in there. So I do have that aspect of my personality. At the same time, I'm also a very tactical person or I'm very organized, and I think very in a structured way about, okay, well, we want to do this, but what are the key elements that are going to actually get us to the next step? So I'm always thinking about that big picture while I'm thinking about like the smaller steps along the way, and then how can I help my team actually accomplish those small steps? And what I realize is that That could take years, actually. So I may have a dream or vision and, you know, hey, this is where we need to be. But that actually takes a lot of time and a lot of small steps to build things along. And what's cool is when you look back and you've taken these two things, you can see, oh, wow, we actually accomplished Mm -hmm. something. We actually got close to that vision or accomplished it. So that's pretty amazing to me. Um, But in truth, a lot of that is sort of stuff that I think comes naturally. What I do always have to check myself on is realizing that the dream can't happen without the tactical stuff so you really kind of need both you can't Mm -hmm. just expect where why we have not gotten there you know because there are parts times when i'm feeling very frustrated like gosh i've said i want this we we should have this everybody's excited but it's not happening and it really always comes down to okay well what are the key steps that are in place to make it happen Mm
0: Thanks so much for your insights. Just incredible talking with you. So at the end of each interview, we're asking um, our guests a couple of questions. What are some of your hobbies and or what do you do for self-care?
1: Well, I am the mother of a 13 and 14-year-old boy and girl, so... One of my biggest, I wouldn't call it a hobby, but one of the things I spend a lot of time doing is, is just raising my kids and enjoying them quite a bit. But for me, um, I'm also an avid exerciser. I do that every day, and I'm a meditator. Um, and so I try as much as possible to meditate as much as possible. I found that that's been very um, helpful to me and restorative for me um, in doing
0: all that I'm doing. Great. What do you think separates good leaders from great leaders?
1: I think good leaders are able to um, lead a group to an outcome, whatever those outcomes may be. I think great leaders are leaders who transform an area or a place, not only because of their vision, but because they're building other leaders within their organization. They are really going deep and trying to figure out how to, how to transform a place. Mm -hmm. So I think that is not just working through oneself, but working through others and, and helping others grow. And I think great leaders do that.
0: Great. What advice would you give to your younger self?
1: I wish I would have let some of my instinct take hold a little earlier, um, and, and understand that those were early signs of my desire for leadership. And, that I had more confidence in my capability to accomplish. If I would known what I know now about what I'm able to accomplish, I would have had a lot less
0: angst and anxiety over the whole process. Yeah. Ebony, thanks for joining us today. This was fantastic. Always so wonderful to talk with you. You have been listening to A Different Kind of Leader. If you like what you have heard, please rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps others find us. Also look for us on Facebook and Instagram
1: at different kind of leader, as well as Twitter at DK leadership. You can also email us at different at gmail.com. Please let us know what leadership questions you have for guests and which inspiring leaders you would like for us to interview next.